Church, it's good to see you guys again this morning. And if you are one of our guests or first time in a long time, just want to welcome you. Uh, a few weeks back, we started a brand new series on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past to eternity still future. And so uh, this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, continuing in the scene early on in Jesus' ministry where he first calls his disciples to leave it all behind and come follow him. And so if you have your Bibles, want to go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 18. But um, one of the things that we've been saying throughout this whole series is that uh, there seems to collectively, universally be a lot of affection and appreciation for Jesus. People like him and, 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 and seem to have positive thoughts towards him, but there's not a whole lot of agreement about who he really is. And probably because of that, there seems to be a lot of confusion about what it actually means to be a Christian today. Uh, you talk to average people on the street and still you're going to get somewhere between 60 to 63% of, of Americans identifying as Christian um, and yet only about 18% of them are going to actually attend a church anytime in the past six months. Uh, you're going to see about 88% of Americans say they're going to own a Bible. 80% of us are going to say that it's holy, that it's actually from the Lord. And only about 7% of us are going to actually read it in any given week outside of the walls of this church. Uh, you ask people to define what it means to be a Christian. And some people are going to tell you that a Christian is someone who goes to church and tries really, really hard to follow the teachings of Jesus. Uh, you talk to Bill Maher and Bill Maher is going to say that a Christian is a judgmental, homophobic hypocrite who thinks that they're the only ones going to heaven and everyone else is going to hell, right? You talk to some people and they're going to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm absolutely a Christian, but I'm not like those kinds of Christians over there, right? You know what I mean? And they're going to define uh, how they follow Jesus in light of what other people are and, and what they are not, right? It's going to be liberals or it's going to be conservatives or it's going to be some example they've seen in the home or in their parents or something like that. Other people are, are going to point to either a confirmation or a prayer that they prayed when they were young to confirm that in fact they are Christians. So uh, kind of a lot in the same way that there's a, there's a lot of talk about Christians and Christianity and, and there's just not a whole lot of agreement about what it actually means to be one. Um, fun little fact, the word Christian does not appear in scripture until about 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we read about it in Acts chapter 11, but essentially there's a group of believers that are gathering together in Antioch uh, about 20-ish years after the resurrection of Jesus. And here's what it says. It says, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And so when you read that verse, what does it mean that, like, what were people called during the three years of Jesus's uh, earthly ministry and the 20 plus years after the resurrection? They were just called disciples, right? That's it. In Antioch, the disciples were simply called Christians. In fact, um, only about three times in scripture is the word Christian even used, but about 281 times it talks about being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the reason that I bring that up is because it may be very confusing about what a Christian is today. It may be really hard to define that specifically, but if you're a first century Jew, then there's absolutely no confusion whatsoever about what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to get into this morning in our passage. So again, if you got your Bible, we're going to be Matthew chapter four, and we're going to pick it up together. Uh, starting in verse 18. He's just come on the scene. Uh, he'd begun his adult ministry on earth. The baptism was in chapter 3. The temptation of Christ is the beginning of chapter 4. And now we're kind of getting into the thick of it here in verse 18. It says that as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. 
Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, anyone else ever seen sort of a, a dramatized version of a scene? Kind of like maybe it's a TV version or a movie version or something like that. I don't know. I've seen a lot of depictions of this kind of scene, and it always appears kind of overly simplistic, right? Kind of stranger danger. Like, why are in the world are these people like seeing Jesus and being like, "Sure, I'm in. I'll follow you. I'm going to give you my life." Like, um, it just it just seems kind of weird. Like Jesus is just strolling on the on the beach one day, and he sees some people fishing, and he's like, "Hey, guys, come follow me." And they're like, "Sure, why not?" Got nothing else going on. I'm going to leave the family business and my dad behind and go follow this stranger over here. Um, this is one of those scenes where it helps to know a little bit more of what's, what's really going on behind the scenes so that it makes a little bit sense. Number one, this is not actually the first interaction that these people have ever had with Jesus. Uh, we know that Andrew was actually a disciple of John the Baptist. And so as being, as a disciple of John the Baptist, he knew who Jesus was. John had declared who he was. And so they were ready. He was ready to follow him. Now we don't know much about Simon at this time or James and John. Uh, but we do know that Andrew told people. And so people had heard about who Jesus was at this point in time. Um, secondly, there's this cultural dynamic taking place here between rabbis and their disciples, um, that if we were kind of in that culture and knew what was going on there, it would make a whole lot of, it would make a whole lot more sense and make it a lot more normative than how this first appears to us today. So let me try to explain that. But, um, back for, for, uh, all Hebrew boys, they started out going to Torah school when they were five years old, right? So all Hebrew boys, when, when you turn five, there's no kindergarten and Play-Doh and recess and, and stuff like that. Like five-year-olds, they're going to Torah school, right? They're memorizing major chunks of the Torah. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, first five books of the Old Testament, right? I mean, that is intense training right there. We are trying to teach our kids letters and, and phonics and things like that, and they're memorizing uh, the scriptures. And so we can get off on that another day. But um, the way that it all began is actually a pretty beautiful ceremony. They would hold what was called kind of like a, uh, maybe it's a honey ceremony where they are going to bring in five-year-olds and they're going to be beginning their school days. And they bring them into this ceremony. And as they begin to read the opening chapters of Genesis out loud, uh, they're going to start dripping honey on the tongues of these five-year-old Jewish boys in order to communicate the sweetness of God's word and how all satisfying that it actually is. Which is why you're going to read about honey so often in scripture. And you're going to read things like the psalmist in Psalm 119, when he says, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth, right? That's where this language is going to come from. It's this it's this understanding that the word of God is all satisfying and sweeter than anything that the world can provide. And so from the ages of five to 10, I mean, these kids are being uh, just immersed in the Torah. They're memorizing large, giant chunks of the Torah. By about 10 years old, all, all young Jewish boys, they know it really, really well. And that's when the first cut is going to essentially take place. Um, the best of the best students... Uh, they're going to continue in their studies, and they're going to be able to study the rest of the Old Testament. That's going to be Joshua to Malachi, the great Italian prophet. And, um, and they're going to study the rest of the Old Testament there. And then the rest of the kids, they're going to go home, and they're going to go work with their uh, mom and dad back home, the family trade and things of that nature. Uh, between 10 and 17, they're going to keep studying the rest of the Old Testament. Right around 17 years old, there's going to be another cut that takes place. And that's going to be the time when most of these young students are going to have to decide, okay, do I want to pursue vocational ministry or not? Essentially, do I want to become a rabbi or a scholar or something like that or or not? Am I am I in this thing or, or not? And so the ones that are kind of going, you know what, I've had my I've had my my day. I'm done. They're going to go back home. They're going to go fish with dad and do the, the family business. But the best of the best, the ones who 
are saying, okay, you know what? I'm going to go on and I'm going to pursue vocational ministry. Uh, they're going to go and they're going to try to find a rabbi who's willing to take them under their wing and they're going to become his Talmud, his disciple. And uh, they're going to go study for the rest of their days underneath uh, this rabbi. And so uh, that's what's going to be taking place somewhere around there. Now, there's a couple things that most disciples are looking for uh, when they're trying to find a rabbi that they want to follow. Um, number one, the first thing they're going to be looking for is whether or not a, a rabbi has this rare characteristic called shmiha, right? I just spelled, I think it's S-E-M-I-K-H-A-H, essentially. It's pronounced shmiha. And um, essentially in Hebrew, that it, all it means is authority. And it's a very, it's not just any, any kind of authority. We're talking about a rare type of authority, uh, a lot of authority uh, that this person has. In fact, in the first couple centuries, there's only about two dozen or one dozen uh, rabbis that were identified as having shmiha because it was that rare and that difficult to gain. And so in order to be identified as a rabbi who has shmiha, there's a few things that have to take place. Number one, you've got to be a master of the Torah. And so it's not just that you memorized it when you were five to ten, something like that. You got to have the whole thing understood. Uh, you know it inside and out. You're a master of the Torah. In fact, um, a lot of them would even be able to feel the freedom to add on, add on to the Torah, which is very unhealthy all the time. But nevertheless, that took place. And so you have to be a master of the Torah. Another one, another one is that uh, you have to be able to perform miracles. Right. That's going to immediately thin out the crowd of people that are able to have shmiha. Right. So you've got to have a history of being able to perform miracles. Right. And so that's another one. And then the third one is that you have to have uh, you have to have been affirmed by two other rabbis who also have shmiha as one who has shmiha. And so not very many people have it. And these two other rabbis have to come and say, you know what? This is legit. You've got this whole thing going on here. And we are affirming that you have it in there. And so uh, all that to say, it's a very, very um, exclusive club that didn't have a whole lot of people in it. The second thing that you're looking for in a rabbi is their yoke. Uh, I spelled it wrong in the first service. I did Y-O-L-K. This is definitely not the inside of an egg. Right. So my bad first service yoke, Y-O-K-E, essentially right there. But uh, you're looking at the rabbi's yoke and a, a rabbi's yoke is their specific set of interpretations and applications of the Torah in the Old Testament, essentially. Right. So this would be very similar to today where you're kind of you see denominational differences, even under the heading of orthodoxy. Uh, you may hear a different preacher and they're going to apply a certain passage one way, whereas other preachers may apply it a certain different way. And you've got some denominations that have a culture over here. You can always tell who they are and, and other ones that kind of look like you've got certain interpretations. That's pretty much what a rabbi's yoke is. And you're going to read about this all throughout the scripture and stuff. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus is going to say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon me. And so you're, as a young disciple, you're, you're, the rabbi's yoke is really important because as a young disciple, you are agreeing to take that rabbi's yoke around your neck and to carry that set of interpretations and applications as your own and continue to spread it all around the world. And so you're going to be looking at these things and it's going to be very, very important because that's what a young disciple does. They carry that yoke of the rabbi. They learn all the different things that the rabbi has learned. They do the different things that the rabbi does so that they can become like their rabbi and everything. And so once you've decided upon, you've had your little rabbi draft and everything, you kind of figured out, okay, this is the rabbi I'm going to follow from here on out. Like the application process begins to say, okay, I'm going to go follow this this rabbi over here. And it's a kind of a fun application process. Basically, there's no paper involved. They go find that rabbi and they sit at their feet 
um, and let that rabbi drill him with questions in a series of different tests in order for that rabbi to figure out, okay, does this person have what it takes to go to actually follow me and all these different things? Fun little fact. Um, back when I was at a and I had a acquaintance, a friend of mine who did this with, with John Piper. I literally did this with John Piper. He was a Piperite, which a lot of young people are. Uh, John Piper is this famous preacher, author, scholar um, up in Minnesota. <laughs> this buddy of mine graduates A&M and decides, okay, I'm going to drive up to Minnesota and go knock on John Piper's door. And so he knocks on his door and is like, I want you to disciple me. And he sits on his front yard and Piper's like, uh, get away. Get away. Like, I'm, I'm literally having dinner with my family. Why did you just show up here? Like, We have email and phones now, unlike Bible times. Anyway. So uh, anyway, fun little story. He ends up becoming John Piper's disciple. That's why sitting in his front yard and kind of doing this whole thing right here. Uh, anyway, it does not have a whole lot to do with this, except I thought that was really weird. Um, don't do that today. It is always really, really weird. So don't show up at someone's front door. Anyway, all that to say, the selection process for finding a rabbi and becoming a disciple, like it's incredibly competitive, right? Back then, they didn't have pro athletes, pro baseball players, soccer players, or anything like that. Uh, all little kids grew up dreaming of becoming uh, a famous rabbi, their favorite rabbi. Again, much like today, how most kids grow up trying to become a, a preacher and... Um, Right, that's like the, what they dream of doing, and so there's a lot of competition there in those early days, and so the rabbis can put them through a series of tests, and they can be picky and choosy, and they can make sure that they are finding the best of the best who are going to follow them, and so they sit them down and they begin to grill them with questions and put them through all these different tests in order to find out can this kid learn all the different things that I've learned, can this kid do all the different things that I do, and can he carry my yoke well upon his shoulders. And so he puts them to the test. And if that kid's not a part of the A team and he's not the best of the best, then he's going to send them back home so that he can go fishing with dear old dad and carry on the family business. But if he is the best of the best and he's putting them through these series of tests and he's kind of saying, okay, this kid's got something, then the rabbi's going to make an invitation to him. And he's going to say very, very simply, just come follow me. And that disciple's going to leave everything behind and do whatever it takes to follow that rabbi their entire life in order to know the things that that rabbi knows and do the things that that rabbi does in order to become like that rabbi in everything. And so back to the text here, I mean, here's Jesus who knows the Torah so well that as a preteen boy, he's back in the temple. He's teaching as one who has shmiha, authority. And you're going to see this set of him all the time. He's not like the other teachers of the law and the other religious leaders. Like when Jesus teaches, he teaches as one who has this special quality to the things that he's doing. He's teaching as one who has Shmiha. In chapter 3, John the Baptist, who is also a rabbi, who has Shmiha and this incredible authority about him. He's going to say of Jesus, there's one coming after me who has more power, more authority than I do. And so he's going to give testimony to Jesus and he's going to say, he has he has this power and authority. Uh, there's one coming after me whose who's sandals... I'm unworthy to untie. Uh, there in the baptism, the heavens are going to open up and the Father's going to say of Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, right? And so there's going to be these affirmations, public affirmations of the power and authority of Jesus. On top of that, Jesus has already had a history of miracles. Uh, he's already turned water into wine. And when you've got that party trick in your back pocket, you're going to become famous very, very quickly. Word spreads of what Jesus did at the wedding feast in Cana. And so uh, people know that he has this background in verse 20. It says that he's traveled throughout the region doing miracles. He's healing every disease among the people. And so he's got this background of miracle working too. In other words, everything that we're seeing is that the Jesus is this rabbi that is overflowing with Shemiha. 
And here he is, he's walking on the beach and he's making an invitation to a group of fishermen, including James and John, who are in the boat with dear old dad, which means what? means that they're the B team, right? I mean, it means that at some point in time that they were sent home and they didn't make the cut. Uh, One scholar put it like this. He said, when it came to choosing his disciples, God skipped all the wise people in his day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens and the powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodotus, the historian, Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar. He chose people who were so ordinary. It was comical. No rabbis, no teachers, no religious experts, not even a synagogue ruler, half were fishermen. One was essentially an IRS agent and one was a former terrorist church. In other words, everything like, in other words, what we're seeing here is that, is that he's not choosing you on the basis of your ability. He's looking for your availability. Like he's not looking for the greatest abilities in the world. He's looking for people who are available and willing to follow him no matter what. That's who he chooses to carry out his yoke. It's men and women who are willing to follow and who are willing to rely on his power and his power alone for every bit of ministry success. It's why Paul's going to say this. He's going to say, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Church, you remember this? He says, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were wise or, or noble by birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world in order to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of this world in order to shame the strong. And God chose the lowly things of this world and, and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Church, what's he talking about right there? He's talking about the, the fact that, that God chose the B-teamers in order to bring the greatest revival that this world has ever seen. I mean, just after the resurrection of Christ, you've got to understand, the Romans, the most powerful nation in the world, were trying to stamp out this movement of Christ followers back in the day. But lay people just kept rising up and they just start being, started being filled with the Holy Spirit and they just kept spreading out no matter the persecution that was taking place. And they kept opening up their mouth and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and people just kept getting saved. And, and the Holy Spirit just kept using normal people, fishermen like Peter right here, in order to spread the gospel and bring about revival. And you remember Peter's story, right? Like it wasn't always, it wasn't always aces and home runs. I mean, one day he's boldly declaring, this is the Christ, the son of the living God. Next thing you know, he's saying, I don't even know who this man is. I mean, one day he's walking on water, and the next thing you know, he's sinking. I mean, one day he's faithfully following Jesus. The next thing you know, he's falling asleep in prayer and cutting a dude's ear off. Right? And then all of a sudden, uh, the resurrection happens, and 50 days later, Pentecost happens, the Holy Spirit comes, and then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit fills him. He starts opening up his mouth preaching, and all of a sudden, 3,000 people come to know Jesus in a day. And here's the thing, church, like, it, the church explodes and it's not just people like Peter. It's people like James and John and a guy named Stephen in Acts chapter 6, right? It's just, it's, 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 he's, a, he's a lay person that God uses to be the very first Christian martyr in the early church. And, and God uses his faith to stimulate this movement that never stops. It's people like, like James and John and, and Philip in the very next chapter. God uses Philip to go bring the gospel to this Ethiopian eunuch and spread the gospel that way. It's people like Mary Magdalene, the, the apostle to the apostles, and, and Lydia, the very first church planner in Europe. And this guy named Saul, who had all the greatest abilities and, and, and gifts in the world, but he was never available to the Lord until one day he's on a road to Damascus and he has this encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ and everything changes. All of a sudden, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and his name is changed from the, from Saul to Paul, and he goes on to become a hero in the faith. He writes nearly half the New Testament, including things like Second Corinthians chapter twelve, where he says, "Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me." 
Three times I pleaded the Lord, take this thing away from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardship and in persecutions and in difficulties. For when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. Church, that's what he's looking for in a disciple. He's not looking at your ability. He's looking at your availability. It is men and women who are willing to follow him, even in weakness, confident that when I am weak, then he can become strong. Church, what would it look like if we stopped letting our insecurities dictate our willingness to fully follow him and everything he's called us to do? I mean, I'll never forget years ago when I was graduating seminary, uh, the, the guy who won our preaching award my, my final year there was a good buddy of mine. That's a whole different story why we're doing preaching awards and things like that. But anyway, like, uh, he was a good buddy of mine, and he would, uh, he would tell you, and you would immediately know, he's a man that struggled with enormous social anxiety. I mean, you, you meet him, and there's a lot of sweat happening and a lot of stuttering, and there's a lot of insecurity taking place, and, and uh, he didn't really know what he wanted to do vocationally and that kind of a thing. And I remember sitting in preaching class one day and all of a sudden he opens up his mouth to go to the front of the classroom and preach. And it was this unbelievable power like I'd never seen in my life. I remember texting Kat after class and I was like, you'll never believe who is probably the best preacher on our campus here. It's like this guy right over here. Church, he just doesn't need the A-team in order to accomplish the things that he wants to do. Right? He doesn't need the A-team. He doesn't need the people with the greatest abilities in the world. He needs people that are available and willing to be used by him and be filled by his Holy Spirit to accomplish all the things that he wants to accomplish. I've told you guys in the past about my, my cousin, Kimberly. I think I've got a picture up here now, but um, this is a picture of her when she's around three, three and a half years old, something like that. But easily one of the more fruitful people that I've ever known in my life. She passed away a few years back, right around 30 years old. And Uh, When she was born, she was not expected to live. Uh, She had a number of uh, mental and physical disabilities, a number of different complications. As soon as she was born, her father left her mother, said, I didn't want to deal with this my whole life. And he just took off and just one issue right after another. And when she passed away a few years back, I remember we were at the funeral and everybody was just telling stories. And that church is just packed with people that came in to give testimony of how God has used her life in order to stimulate their own faith or bring them to faith in the first place. And I remember this from her life, right? I I remember as a high schooler taking her in her wheelchair uh, through the grocery store. And we'd be going up and down aisles and then all of a sudden her sensitivity would kick in. And she would grab someone we we were just passing by and she would say, can I just pray for you? And, and you got to understand, like she she didn't have physically control of her body very much, and she couldn't speak. She bit off her tongue when she was a little child, and so she had a tiny little thing. So she was it was it was very very broken English. But we would be passing by, and she would grab people and just say, "Can I pray for you?" And she would see something in them, and of course she couldn't pray, so she's like, "Okay, Aaron, you you take it." And I'm like a I'm a 16 year old boy, kind of going, uh, "What are we doing here? It's a little weird here, right?" But she would do that all the time. I knew that if I took her out in public with me, I need to be ready to share the gospel. And I remember this. I mean, we would be, there was this one time we were sitting in line about to check out our groceries and, and, uh, and the, she's having a little bit of a banter and stuff with the person who's checking us out. And, and, uh, and then all of a sudden she busts out and she just goes, do you know Jesus? Which is another one of her constant questions. She just goes, do you know Jesus? And the lady gets really uncomfortable. She's like, oh yeah, yeah, I've been to church. And she looks at me and she goes, that's the wrong answer. And she goes, tell her. And I was like, okay, great. Um, it's kind of unforced evangelism right there and stuff. But 
I mean, this kind of thing was happening all the time. I mean, we go over to her home and she's going to tell you that she loves you probably a hundred times in a row. And then on top of that, she's going to remind you, guess what? God loves you too. And strangers would come over and she'd say the exact same thing to you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. I love you too. That was her testimony. Just one of the most fruitful people I've ever known in my life. Church, he doesn't need the A-team. Are you hearing me this? He doesn't need the most skilled and the gifted. He doesn't need you to know and to memorize the Torah. He doesn't need all your gifts and abilities. He needs your availability. Men and women who are simply willing to come to him and say, wherever you go, I'm willing to go. However you want to use me, I'm willing to be filled by your spirit. And I'm willing to go in simple obedience, wherever that may be. Church, when you're following Jesus and you're filled by the Holy Spirit, your availability trumps your ability every single day of the week and twice on Tuesday. It's everything. Second thing I want you to notice about this passage is just the simplicity of the call, right? It's just a very, very simple call that Jesus makes. I mean, all it is is to follow Jesus and to, I'm going to say holistically fish for people. I'm going to define that for you in just a minute. But that's all he says, verse 19. He says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. In other words, church, like Jesus, following Jesus is a little bit more than just showing up at church and or sitting in a classroom learning a few things and changing a few moral values. It's, it's actually fishing for people. And it's sharing in His compassion for people. And it's a willingness to go to people. And it's a willingness to love people in such a way that sees everything, that, that undoes everything that sin's destroyed. It's exactly what we're going to see here in verse 23. Next scene, it says that, that Jesus went all throughout Galilee teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So, in other words, like there's absolutely a time for teaching and preaching. Like there's absolutely a time to sit in the to sit in the classroom and to study the things of God. There's absolutely a time to go out and just focus on the good news and the bad news and the simple simple message of the gospel. But he doesn't just end it right there. It says that he continues to go out and he's healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Church, why in the world is he touching and dealing dealing with the physical if the only thing that matters is the spiritual? Like why in the world does he care about people's sickness and about the physical things that they're dealing with here if the only thing that matters is the good news? And the bad news and the spiritual realities that are there and heaven and hell and things of that nature. Church, like they're all deeply connected, right? And we get that, like the, the physical and the spiritual and the relational tension and the social dysfunction all around. Like the entire thing is deeply connected. Verse 24, it says that his fame spread throughout all of Syria. So they brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons and those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed them. So here it is. Great crowds began to follow him. In other words, church, like by fishing holistically, physically, spiritually, emotionally, uh, uh, socially, relationally, by fishing holistically and giving attention to everything that sin destroyed, like more people were willing to follow Jesus. And church, we got to understand this, like what happened back in the garden was absolutely enormous. It was so much bigger than any than just a spiritual fracture, although that was the greatest part of it. But what happened back in the garden was a massive, massive destruction of all kinds of things that we're still feeling today. I mean, back in the garden, men and women were supposed to be co-equal image bearers of God. They were working together for the good of creation, but sin enters in. And now all of a sudden we're talking about power struggles and domination. And we're talking about toxic work cultures and domestic abuse and why I didn't report movement from this past week. And so what does Jesus do when he comes on the scene? Like immediately he begins teaching against and speaking to, to undo all these different things that sin came and destroyed. I mean, first thing immediately there in the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, he's undoing all the damage from the fall. Check it out. Chapter five, verse 27. He says, you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Church, who's he talking to primarily there? Like he's speaking to everybody, right? But he's specifically calling out men here. But I say to you that everyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her and his heart. Church, let me ask you another question. Like, who were the only people that were ever charged for the crime of adultery back then? It was women. I mean, you remember this, right? Judah and Tamar. We, we've talked about this extensively. Judah and Tamar. Tamar is twice widowed already and, and, and her father-in-law Judah doesn't trust her anymore. So he, he, he condemns her to go live the rest of her days as a cursed widow. And she gets pregnant out of wedlock and, and immediately Judah tries to have her stoned to death. You remember this scene, right? Like she's pregnant out of wedlock and, and boom, he brings her publicly and he wants to stone her and have her killed. Like where's the man in this scenario? Where, I, mean, I mean, literally, you know this, right? It takes two to tango. It's, it didn't just happen. Just There's one Virgin Mary here. Like, where's the man? There's no outrage here against them. Oh, wait a second. It was Judah, wasn't it? You remember how that story goes? But he thought he was sleeping with a prostitute. And so he got confused and didn't know that it was actually Tamar. Like, where's the man in this whole story here? John chapter eight is the exact same thing. The religious leaders are trying to kill a woman who's been caught in adultery. They, they literally caught her in the act. And again, two to tango here. Where's the dude? They bring this woman and they bring her to Jesus. And, and Jesus doesn't play that game, right? They say, Jesus, okay, the law allows us to stone her to death. Like that's the crime of adultery. That's what's going on with adultery here. That's the, the, the law allows us to stone her to death and have her killed. What do you say? And Jesus just gets out on the ground and he starts like writing things in the dirt. And then he stands up and he says, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they just start walking away until there's no one left except for this woman and Jesus. And ironically, Jesus is the one who is without sin, but he doesn't cast a stone. All he says is go and sin no more. Church, it's, it's, it's like, that's what he's doing. He's undoing all of the fallout from sin. He's undoing the social things that are taking place, the physical break, fallout, the spiritual fallout, the relational tensions that are taking place. He is undoing everything that sin destroyed. It's Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, no more domination in the home. And he's righting all these wrongs and he's saying, hey, there's going to be these power struggles here. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, no more. Like no more domination in the home. He's going to say in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Church, that did not happen back then. That did not happen back then, but he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. In other words, you remember what I said in Philippians chapter two, verse three, when, when we need to follow the example of Christ and in humility, consider one another as more important than ourselves. Like that actually applies to your marriage too. And so he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Yes, wives to your own husbands, but husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. In other words, don't just feel love towards them and do nothing about it, but, but physically love her every single day. Do the work of love. It's an absolute verb as Christ loved the church. In other words, it's not this hypothetical scenario where one day in the future, you may have an opportunity to be a hero and lay down your life for your wife. Every single day, you're giving fully of yourself for the flourishing of your spouse. Church, he came to undo everything sin destroyed. And what I'm trying to say is that everywhere he went, he came and he undid these different things that are ripping apart the fabric of our culture. I mean, back in, back in the garden here, uh, there was an abundance of provision. 
Like there's an abundance of provision. And now we're talking about like homelessness and joblessness and a ground that doesn't want to be worked. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he says things like, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. In other words, like I am able to provide a satisfaction for you and a feeling for you that food and drink cannot even touch. And consider the raven. They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn and God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? And then Jesus takes his whole mission and the way that he thinks about things and the way that he loves the poor and sees the needy and sees the hungry and the thirsty. And he passes on that commission to you and me, his church, his body. And he says this in Matthew 25, he says, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Why? For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and guess what? You clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to me. And of course, the righteous are going to answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did you when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And you remember exactly what he says. He says, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you've done it unto me. Church, he's undoing everything that sin destroyed. I mean, the the garden was supposed to be full of peace and and joy. And now we're talking about fear and anxiety and and clinical depression and suicide and shame. And Jesus comes along and he says, don't be afraid for I'll always be with you. Don't be afraid if I go ahead and prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me so that wherever I am, you may also be. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Church, the garden was supposed to be full of unity between each other, between other humans and between us and God. And now we're talking about things like racism and all kinds of divisions in and outside of the church. And Jesus comes along and in Ephesians chapter 2, we find out that, that he tears down the dividing wall of hostility, which existed between Jews and Gentiles to rival racial groups. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says that Jesus came in and he tore down that dividing wall of hostility. Why? To create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus establishing peace. And if it couldn't be any more clear, Paul's going to say in Galatians 3.28, he's going to say that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Church, in the garden there's supposed to be health and strength. And now we're talking about miscarriage and cancer and all kinds of disease. So you better believe, church, Jesus didn't just come to preach. He's out there in the streets and he's touching the sick so that the sick can be healed. And he go, he's going to the hungry and he's giving them food. And he goes to the possessed and he's, he's making the demons flee. And he speaks to the lame so they're able to dance. And he's able to touch the blind so that they can actually see church. He didn't just come to preach. He came to undo everything that sin destroyed. And because he did. And because he cared about all the smaller things. The physical, the spiritual, the emotional, uh, the social, the relational. All these different kinds of things. His fame just continued to spread. And large crowds began to follow Jesus. It's crazy, isn't it? How God uses the simple things like a sandwich or a coat at just the right time or an empathetic ear or patience in a conversation that you don't understand or a willingness to cross into a neighborhood that you don't typically go into. Or a willingness to use your voice to fight for injustice when you don't even understand the entire thing that's going on here. It's crazy how God uses these simple things, which 
you had no idea had spiritual implications and how God just uses them and interweaves them all to stimulate affection for the spiritual things through you in those times. I mean, it's almost like the whole thing's just intimately connected, isn't it? I mean, it's almost like they, that by doing those things, we communicate that there's a God in heaven who sees you in your time of need and he is more than capable of providing for you in that moment. I mean, it's almost like we're communicating to people that don't understand or know God that he is a God who's full of compassion and more than capable of being your comforter in your time of mourning. I mean, it's like we're communicating in the, in the middle of that moment that he's also a just and righteous and holy God who doesn't laugh or turn a blind eye to the injustice going on around you and that he cares about it now. He's redeeming it right now. And one day, still future, he's going to come back and he's going to right all wrongs. It's like we're communicating these, these things about God and the very, very simple things that we always thought were disconnected. One of my favorite hidden heroes in scripture is a lady named Tabitha. Uh, she's also known as Dorcas, and there's not a whole lot said about her. Um, she probably went by Tabitha. Um, <laughs> we read about her story just a little bit in Acts chapter 9, verse 36, but she's described as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so maybe she wasn't in that inner circle of 12 right there, but she's a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is always doing good and helping the poor. Man, wouldn't she love to have that legacy? She passes away and... Peter goes to visit her, and uh, here's, what it's, here's what it says. It says that all the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and the other clothing that Dorcas had made them while she was still with them. All it was was robes and clothing. And they're weeping over her loss. You think that those robes made a spiritual impression on those widows that were there that day? The church, I mean, have you ever known a Tabitha before and you ever seen the, the witness of a Tabitha, how strong it is? I mean, I'm thinking of a friend of mine named Danny and probably about 15 plus years ago now is when he moved to Dallas as a young single. And you know, the rest of typically what you do when you move to Dallas as a young single, you go to the village apartments or you move uptown and you play the game a little bit and you live it up and you have a good time. And Danny decided he was going to move into Vickery Meadow. Because that's where all the international refugees were moving into and all these families that have been stripped from their home and just come from tragic circumstances trying to figure out how to do life here in Dallas. And he decides he's going to go move in there and figure out how he can serve. And as a young single, he moved in there by himself. And honestly, he would tell you today he didn't really know what he was doing. He'd probably still tell you he still doesn't know what he's doing a whole lot there. But he moved in and just started saying, okay, Lord, I'm available. How do you want to use me? And he starts looking around and noticing that as all the um, as all the re- refugee students are coming home from school, they're coming back and the parents are gone. Most of them are are just scarred by the tragic circumstances which they came from. The ones, uh, many of them were off working jobs and they're coming home from school, nothing to do in the afternoon. And so he just gets out there and fires up a grill and starts making burgers and sandwiches as kids come home from school so they can actually have a good meal that day. Kept doing that for a little while and kept, they kept coming home and the meals were done and he didn't really know what to do. And he realized that, hey, all these international students, that they love soccer. And so there's a soccer field of the apartment complex next door and he just starts getting a soccer ball and just organizing these games. And I'm not kidding you, uh, it didn't take very long at all before just dozens and dozens and dozens of kids. Like the whole school empties and they go to that soccer field and Danny's playing soccer with all those different kids. Winter time quickly came around and most of these refugees that were there at the time were coming from 
uh, Central Africa. They never experienced the harshness of a winter before. They didn't have winter coats. And these kids are going to, to school in the wintertime in shorts and T-shirts with no coats or anything like that. And so he organizes a coat drive with the church, and we all come down there. And we bring them all nice coats and things of that nature so they could be warm in the wintertime. And, and he's looking around. These new refugee families are moving into their apartment complex, and, and they have no furniture. They don't have a couch. Uh, they don't know what a refrigerator is. Literally, we, we met a refugee one time from Sudan and, and we came, came in there and there's milk on the countertop and, and meat on the countertop and all this kind of stuff sitting next to the fridge because they had no idea what a refrigerator was or how to use it. And so Danny would come in and he would get furniture and he would help people acclimate to these new apartments and, and get them integrated and things like that. And then he's noticing that these kids are coming home from school and they're getting bullied by the other kids that because they just weren't exactly like them. And so... Danny and a number of their friends, they decide that they're going to get up really, really early in the morning and they're going to walk these kids to school. That's early for elementary school. And they walk them to school and then they meet them there when it's all done, right around 2.30. And they they meet them after school and they walk them home and make sure that they're not going to be bullied anymore. I don't even need to tell you this. It took about a year before he actually started his first Bible study in the community. But when Danny opened up the very first Bible study in that community, like I don't even need need to tell you what happened. Like he opened up his doors and like the community just flooded to that place. I mean, they were hungry for whatever that thing was that was driving him to, to love the way that he was loving. He opened up this Bible study and like all these kids start coming to faith and mom and dad starts coming to faith. And just one of the most fruitful things I've ever been. He calls me up over the church. He's like, they don't want to come to church. What are we going to do? <clears throat> and I'm like, I have no idea. And so we, we get two 15 passenger vans and we start getting up there early in the morning and, and going around and driving and picking them up early in the morning to bring them to church. And we're doing multiple rounds. There's so many of them coming to the church and, and they're all of a sudden getting baptized and growing and, and changing and all these different kinds of things. And it's just one of the most fruitful things I've ever seen in my life. Church, like that's how you holistically fish for people. It's not just here's a track. Here's some good news and here's some bad news. And if you're in, then I'm in too. And if you're not, peace out. We'll see you later. Like Jesus is showing us a brand new holistic way to fish for people. The cross is social boundaries. It crosses relational tensions. It crosses societal norms that we've grown accustomed to. And in everything that he's doing, he is redeeming everything and undoing everything that our sin had destroyed. So here it is, church. When, when we gather together every single week and you read articles or you see headlines out there and all these different debates that take place in church circles about should we be about compassion ministries or social justice or should we go and do street evangelism or should we be teaching the Bible and just doing classes over and over again? Church, we've got to be able to understand that it is always all of the above and never either or. Jesus shows us a holistic way of fishing for people. He's teaching in the synagogue because we have to be a people that are aligning with the truth of his word. He's in the streets and he's preaching the gospel because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. But he's also going outside the walls of this church to holistically fish for people, to heal the blind and to heal the lame and to cast out demons and to care for people exactly where they are because he's undoing everything that sin destroyed. And get, church, guess, guess where the disciples are every step of the way? They're right behind them. They're learning everything that he's learned. They're doing everything that he does. 
in hopes that one day they may also become like their rabbi. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you to bow with me right now.